All two of you guys. Well, often this day you will know about Bezalel and you'll be filled with admiration for him and hopefully you'll want to emulate him. Bezalel. Bezalel was a craftsman. He worked with his hands. He sculpted things. He, he worked with wood and with stone and with things of that nature. But he made the tabernacle and everything in it was his handiwork. And the tabernacle was the type of the temple that came later. And the same things and the same pattern that was in the tabernacle was carried forward into the temple. And this man, almost unknown to most of us, Bezalel, he crafted these things. And in doing that made a significant difference in the kingdom of God. A difference that has lasted over the millennia. Let's start by reading about him. It's, you find him in Exodus chapter 31. I'll read to you verses 1 and through to 11. There are some other references to him in Exodus, but they more or less repeat, with one exception which I'll point out to you later. All right, Exodus 31 from verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make him art- to make artistic designs for the work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Ahalab, son of Ashimach, of the tribe of Dan to help him. Also I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, the basin with its stand, And also the woven garments, both the sacred garments of Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons, when they serve as priests. And the anointing oil and fragrant incense of the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. God spoke to Moses. Moses, the great Old Testament apostolic figure and prophet of God, speaks to Bezalel, says, God's appointed you, here's the pattern, here's what you're to make, follow it faithfully. He's anointed by the Spirit of God, and he faithfully and obediently makes the tabernacle and everything in it. Now, the first and most important thing that I want to drive home from the life of Bezalel for us today is that he was not a craftsman, Sorry, he was not a king and he was not a prophet. He was a craftsman. Yet there was a place in God's dispensation for him. There is a place in the kingdom of God for everyone and for every ministry. Every child of the living God has a role and a purpose and a ministry to perform. May God will equip and pour out his anointing. Everyone has a place in the shadow of the Almighty Why do I use those words? Well, Bezalel, the word means in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 36 verse 7 captures this lovely verse. It says, How priceless is your unfailing love! Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Everyone, all who call on the name of the Lord, high and noble and great and humble and mundane, 
and even children find shadow, place in the shadow of the Most High God. The words in the shadow of God means more than just protection. It, it, the language evokes intimacy. It evokes a place. It evokes safety. It, it, it evokes the thought of, here's a place of warmth and comfort where I can be, where I can live and breathe and have my being, where I can find meaning and relevance. There's meaning and relevance and ministry and anointing under the shadow of the Almighty for all God's children, both high and low. Jesus, when he stood for the last time on the Mount of Olives, lamenting over Jerusalem, captures the power of this expression. Jesus opened his arms to Jerusalem and he said these words, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather your people together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not have it. In those words you can almost hear the heartbreak of God the Son speaking out over his people and saying, I just wanted you under the shadow of my wings. But you were not willing to come. There is though not only a place for us under his wings. There is also an anointing of the Holy Spirit available for all and for all who minister in Jesus' name. Verse 2. See, I have chosen Bezalel and have filled him with the Spirit of God. You know, we tend to think of the anointing as something that applies only to sort of great men and women. You know, the Catherine Kuhlmans reach out their hands and people fall over backwards. You say, well, that person's really anointed. Or great prophets of God. Or great preachers. Or great apostles. Or great missionaries. Or whatever it is. Yes, of course, they are anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit. But... This is not just spiritual ministries that's in, in, in view here. Don't forget, Bezalel was none of these things I've just mentioned. He was a craftsman. He made things with his hand. But he made them according to the pattern of God, obediently and faithfully, and God's anointing fell upon him. And when he made these things in the tabernacle, they were so beautiful that they took on a nature beyond that which a human being could do. God's anointing enhanced them beyond the normal. And you know, those things, the tabernacle and the things in them, lasted not only over tens of years, not only over hundreds of years, but over the thousands of years. And then they were embodied in the temple. And they lived on and on and on in the nation of Israel. Verse 3. I have filled him, that's Bezalel, with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. So, so here's the really cool thing. Whatever it is that God has got for you within his household, within his church, within his wider kingdom, he'll equip you for it. He'll equip you with the skills and the knowledge and the wisdom to be able to do it. Oh, we might look at the task when, at first and say, oh my, why me, Lord? <laughs> I can't do this stuff. And then we'll start to think. Wow. You know, when I was working for such and such, that training I got there, it's just perfect for this job. Oh, you know, when I went down to so-and-so and they taught me to do this, oh, wow, look, here's the application of it. And we'll realize that from way back, he's been equipping us. He equips us for the task of ministry. 
for the great and for the lesser, for the holy, for the mundane, for the super spiritual, and for what doesn't appear on the face of it to be spiritual, but actually is. And then on top of that equipment, he pours out the unction of his spirit, which will raise the things that we can do from the best we can do to something far beyond the best we can do. It will carry a potency and a divine unction which will have effect in the lives of other people. And this can be for you. If for Bezalel, why not for you? Why not for you when you're doing somebody's hair? Why not for you when you're bringing up a grandchild? Why not for you when you're dealing with the accounts of the church? Why not for you when you're leading a cell group? Why not for you when you're taking people through exercises and stretch and tones? Why not? Why not for you and you and you and you? But there's one other thing that he added to Bezalel that I must point out to you. It's a vitally important one. And you won't find it in this passage. It's in one of the repetitions of this passage which come later in the book of Exodus. But it adds one new piece of information. It's in Exodus 35 verse 34. And it says, And he has given him, that's Bezalel, the ability to teach others. You know, this is absolutely vital. Whatever ministry God puts your hand to in his household, you can't just do it faithfully and then say, my job is done, I've walked the walk, I've run the race, I will now sit in my armchair and just relax because the job is not done until you've passed it on to others. Passed it on. It's embodied in the Great Commission. When Jesus calls his disciples, and therefore us as well, together and says this, go into all the world and make disciples in my name, make disciples of Jesus. And then he says, and teach them to obey everything I have taught you. There it is. Everything that I've told you, you go and do, and you make the disciples, and then you teach them to go and do and make other disciples. And so it goes, rolling down through the millennia as that torch of truth and life passes on. It's included in the statement of purpose, which, which I have trotted out from the frontier over the last 30 years so many, many times. The purpose of every life on earth is, one, to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, to become as much like Him as possible in this lifetime. And three, to teach others, to help others to do likewise. You know, without the last bit, what's the point of the first two? We'll just walk around like little shiny saints. It's me. Mwah. No. We have to help others into that place. It can also be applied and should be applied at a very practical level. So let me give a couple of practical examples. If your ministry within the household of God is leading worship or playing the guitar or piano or drums or singing, you know what? Your task is not finished until you've trained somebody else to do that. And by the way, train them to do it better. So that when they come and they take their place, people will say, wow, I thought we had first prize, but I see we've now got first prize plus. Because this person is so wonderfully anointed of God, etc., etc., etc. 
If you're a teacher in the household of God, teach others to teach. If you're a preacher, teach others to preach for goodness sake. Don't just hog it. If you're a church leader, and this of course applies outside of churches, well anywhere where we have a circle of influence, then teach others. Go and mentor the next generation of leaders. Take hold of the young guys and the young girls who have leadership potential. You see the anointing of God on them and help them to be the leaders of God in tomorrow's house. That's our sacred calling. And you know, here's the really cool bit. The more we give away of our gifts and our talents and our abilities, the stronger they grow. You want to really learn something? You know the old adage? Teach it. It's only when you teach it that you realize you don't actually know it that well. And you learn it. If you really want to hone your skills as a musician, and I speak from personal experience, try and teach somebody else to play the guitar. You suddenly realize you have to unpack stuff you've been doing, doing on autopilot for the last 50 years. Also. <laughs> and here's the other thing. The more you give of God's anointing upon your life, the stronger it becomes in your life. You can't lose with this. You grow stronger, better equipped, more anointed as you help others to grow into that place. I want to pause here and just give two examples to drive this point home at a practical level. The first is from church history, and the second is from our own church's recent history. The first is from a 17th century monk, and his name was Brother Lawrence. Anybody heard of Brother Lawrence? Well, if you haven't, you're now going to. Brother Lawrence lived in a monastery, and he was given the most menial of tasks to do. He wasn't even a, an assistant chef or cook. He was a kitchen aide. Let me spell out what he actually did. Carried buckets of muck. Slopped out the kitchen floors. Fed the pigs. And he did that all day and every day. But he was a devout follower of Jesus. And he says, I will learn to commune with my Lord in everything I do. He learned that whether he was up or down, slopping the floors or feeding the pigs, he could talk with Jesus and learn to know him better. And he did. He lived to the age of 80. And before he died, quite shortly before he died, the cardinal of that area had heard about this shining saint, this wonderful example of Christ in this monastery. Isn't that funny? It was Brother Lawrence who was the shining example of Christ in that monastery, not the other dudes. So he came along and interviewed him four times. And he recorded the interviews. And then Brother Lawrence died. And they found among his possessions a few pieces of paper with a few adages written on them. And so this cardinal put together these things and he published a book. And it was called The Practice of the Presence of Christ. It has been printed and reprinted and kindled and rekindled. Over and over and over again, there have been millions and millions and millions of copies. If you want to look up a list on Google of Christian classics, this will be featured. The practice of the presence of Christ. Helping generation after generation to come to know Christ in the ordinary mundanity of much of our lives. Do you think he had any idea that his ministry would have an impact like that. I'm sure he had none, none whatsoever, but it did. The second is from the church. 
Now, until about five years ago, um, these wonderful banners replaced two wall hangings which, which wore out and they, they couldn't be used anymore. But they were uh, not tapestry. Somebody told me in the first service, they're called, when you take bits of material and you stitch them all together, applique. Applique. So they had built up these two pictures which depicted the heart mission of our church and, in fact, incorporated the gospel message in them as well. And they hung here, one on either side, making two parts of a story for, as I said, 20 years. And quite often, after a service, somebody would come up to me and say, I've been looking at those. They're very nice and they're very colorful, but I can't quite work out what they mean. Please explain. And then I could explain. And then the lights, I could see the lights going, oh. Oh, I've got it, because, you know, a picture sticks forever. When they went a step further than that, we produced four little booklets. One was How to Find Your Ministry, another one was The Principles of Church Membership, another one was Christian Foundations, and so on. And when we produced them, we reproduced a part of the wall hangings on the covers. So we put all four together, you actually get a picture of the whole thing. These little booklets have been used hundreds of people. Everybody who's gone through a membership class has received one of these. But they've gone to the four corners of the world. They're all over the place. I know they're in the Ukraine. I know they're in Ireland. I know they're in America. I know they're in Australia. I know they're in New Zealand. They're all over, these little things. And every time somebody picks one of these up and looks, I guarantee you they'll say, wonder what that means. And the person who gives it to them will say, oh, let me tell you what that means. I got a call from Gerrit. Remember Gerrit? Uh, he was at the 8 o'clock service, always sitting just over there. And Gerrit and his family went off to Ireland some six months ago, I think. He phoned me this week, before I knew I was going to preach, so it must have been Tuesday. And he said, I'm just phoning you to tell you that I'm starting to teach the Rhodes booklet. Rhodes, Relationship, Outreach, Anointing, Doctrine and Structure, which is the fourth in that series. I'm teaching it in Ireland, starting next week. And I just had this picture in my mind of this exact thing, of somebody saying, but Gerrit, I won't try the accent. What does that mean? The part of the story that I've left out on purpose is that how those tapestry, those, those designs came to be made was I received the picture in my mind, I received the scriptures, and I tried to sketch them out with paper and, and, and give words to them. And then I got a group of ladies together and I, I said, can you make this? And they did. They did better than, they took the picture and they expanded it and they made it come alive and with vibrant colors and wonderful design and all the rest of it. And they faithfully followed the pattern and they produced that. I think there were about four or five ladies who worked on that for a month or two. Do you think they had any idea when they were stitching those things, that the picture that they were producing would go across the world and that many, 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 many people would come to know the ethos of this church, but more importantly, the very heart of the gospel through those pictures. I don't even think they had a clue. I certainly didn't have a clue. If we will just do what the Lord puts our hand to with faithfulness and obedience. Then his anointing will come upon our work and it will last and endure generation after generation. For it is not by power nor by strength, 
but by the Spirit of God. And that applies not just to the great preachers or the teachers or the musicians. It applies to every single one of us. It applies to you and you, Raul, and you, Dennis, every one of us. Bezalel was an ordinary man, like Brother Lawrence. Yet he crafted something of huge significance that lasted through the millennia. He made the tabernacle and everything in it. Now the tabernacle became significant in two ways. It became the center of Israel's life. Later it was incorporated into the, into the stone permanent temple in Jerusalem. But it became the very center of the life of Israel. But secondly and even more importantly... It became a prophetic pointer through the generations of the coming of the time when God himself would visit with his people, become man and stand among his children. And then leave behind him a church of disciples who would take his name to the four corners of the world. Let me take you briefly as I can through those two aspects of the tabernacle. Firstly, its role as the center of Israel's life. Firstly, it served as the meeting place between God and man. Before it was called the tabernacle, it was called the tent of meeting. And Moses, who, under God's instruction, would erect it in the middle of the encampment. And, and when God came to visit him, that whole tent started to shine. Can you imagine this tent just blazing with glory? And the people would stand at their tents and they would look and they would say, Ah! Oh, God is talking to Moses. And they would wait with anticipation when Moses would come out and say, I've met with God, this is what he says. It was the place of meeting. That was its first function. Then as it developed under God's instructions, it developed into a tent with three compartments. It had an outer court, an inner court, and an innermost sanctum. The outer court was just called the outer court. The inner court was called the holy place. And the innermost sanctum was called the holy of holies. In the holy of holies stood one piece of furniture. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And it's pictured as this gold-covered box. Its lid was called the mercy seat. But read carefully the description. And you'll see it was more than that. For behind it were carved two golden angels... One of their wings was stretched out towards the other, forming a back. And the other wing was reaching forward, forming the arms. It was a throne. A golden throne made to look like two angels surrounding the seat called the mercy seat. Because it symbolized the place where God would come and sit among his people. Sit to commune. Sit to converse. That box which formed the base under the mercy seat there were three items that were stored there for posterity and we know from Hebrews chapter 9 exactly what they were first of all there was a jar of manna do you remember the manna that fell in the wilderness well they collected some of that and, and that's a miracle by the way because that manna would disappear within 24 hours it would melt but they were able to supernaturally collect some they put it in a jar sealed it up and they stuck it here because it symbolized God's provision so for every year, year after year, the people would remember, God provides for us. The second thing was orange staff that budded. And again, if you remember the story, the people were arguing about who should lead them, who had the power and authority to lead them. And God said, well, all your leaders take a stick, 
and put it in the temple, in the tabernacle, in, in the morning, go and see who's, what's happened. And Aaron's staff budded. Nobody else. So it was a symbol of power and authority. And then the actual original stone commandments, the two slabs of the Ten Commandments, they were stored in there as well. So there was God's provision, God's power and authority, and God's word was stored as a constant reminder over the millennia in the tabernacle. Then in the holy place, where the priests only were allowed to enter, there were three items. First, there was the incense altar. They constantly burnt incense on this altar, and the smoke rose up like prayer and worship and adoration. And when the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies, he passed through this cloud of smoke and then parted the veil and went in. It symbolized the means of approaching God. We approach Him through prayer and worship and adoration. Then there was a seven-branched golden lampstand called the menorah. And the priests had to keep that burning with oil 24-7. So the tabernacle was filled with light because it stood as a symbol of revelation, the means of knowing God. And the third item was a table called the table of showbread. It had 12 loaves of bread on it, round loaves, one for each tribe of Israel. And this symbolized communing with God. You know, we sit around a table and we break bread and we share with each other just to remind the people, this is the means of fellowshipping with God. This tabernacle symbolizes the means of approaching Him, knowing Him, and fellowshipping with Him. <coughs> Excuse me. And then in the outer court, there were two items. There was a thing called the brazen altar, this huge, big, bronze-covered altar that they sacrificed bulls and sheep and goats on. And the blood of those sacrifices were to atone for the sins of the people of God for one year. It was a temporary covering. So it stood as a symbol of the means of salvation for the people of Israel. Then there was a huge big bowl, brass bowl of water. And the priests had to wash their hands and wash their feet at it before they could minister. And it stood as a symbol for the means of cleansing from sin. So this tabernacle in the life of Israel symbolizes the means of cleansing, the means of atonement and salvation, the means of approaching God, the means of knowing God, the means of God's provision, God's authority, God's power, all summed up in this, and Bezalel made it. All of it. According to the pattern of God, ordinary man did this extraordinary thing. The tabernacle meant a huge amount to Israel. When the Israelites had to come up to Jerusalem, every male over the age of 20 had to come to Jerusalem for the three great festivals, that's three times in every year, it centered on the temple. The temple was the pulsating heart of the life of Israel. When there was a revival in Israel, guess where it would break out? Every time it broke out in the temple, like Hezekiah's great revival. When the temple was opened again, when the word of God was revealed again, revival came to Israel. It was absolutely essential and fundamental to the life of Israel. And a simple craftsman did it all and taught others to help him. If Bezalel, skilled and equipped by God, and anointed by the power of God, could do that, why not you? Child of the living God? Why not you? With all your skill, and all your technology, and all your knowledge, and all your learning, and all your experience, and all your knowledge of God, why 
not you. It can be. It can be. The tabernacle, as I mentioned, also served as a powerful prophetic pointer to Jesus and to his coming church. So what Bezalel crafted was not just for his day. It wasn't even just for the nation of Israel. It was also pointing us now to these essential ingredients of the Christian faith. So I want to take you again as briefly as I possibly can through those same things that were in the tabernacle, but looking through the lens of Jesus. Like put on your Jesus glasses and see them through his life. The Holy of Holies, the meeting place with God. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. Do you know what the literal translations of lived for a while are in the Greek? Tabernacle. Tented with us. Right, right there in the first part of John's Gospel. And God became a man and entered his tabernacle. Tabernacle of flesh. And lived among us. The ark of the covenant with the contents. The manna. John 6, what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Actually, he went on and said, as your forefathers ate bread in the wilderness, but I tell you, the real bread is my, me, I'm the real bread. I came down from heaven. Jesus is God's provision for us, for all of humanity. Orange rod that budded, Matthew 28. Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples, including us, and he says, Starts with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples in my name. All authority. Jesus is the source of authority. And then he says to him a bit later on, Wait in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from my You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus is the source of authority and power. The stone tablets. The word of God, Revelation 19. And behold, I saw one riding on a great white horse, and on his thigh was emblazoned these words, and his name was the Word of God. The Word of God is Jesus. We have the inscripturated by Word of God, the Bible. But it's Jesus who has shown us through these pages of Scripture, and it's Jesus who unlocks it for us. It's the living word shown and manifest through the written word. And we have it in our hands. And we have it in our hearts today. Jesus is the source of revelation. And these things are central to the church of our day. And when they cease to become central, the church ceases to become the church. Both for this church and for the South African Theological Seminary, we have established the following three pillars. Just let me remind you of them. The centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. The authority of the Word of God. And dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. Those exact things that are, are shown in the tabernacle are central to the life of the church. Vitally central to the life of the church in our day. In the inner court, and by the way, the inner court would symbolize the church. For we, are we not priests, all priests? In the household of God, that's what the scripture says. Therefore we have access, like the priests of old did, into this place. The incense altar, prayer and worship in Jesus' name, is our means of approaching God. We approach Him through adoration, through prayer, through worship, 
Worship is not just a couple of songs we sing. Worship is us bringing our very hearts before the very throne of God and the music helps us to do that. We approach the throne through worship and prayer and adoration. The menorah, the, the, the candlestick, that, the, the lamps that glowed in John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the source of illumination. He is the light that shines in the darkness of this world and opens our eyes to know God. Without him, we cannot know God. He's just a concept or a philosophy. Jesus is the light that opens us to the reality. The table of showbread. What did Jesus say when he took the Last Supper? What do we say every time we break bread in this church? Jesus, on the night he was to be betrayed, took bread and broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me until I come. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is our sustenance and our means of communing. And then the outer court, which was opened, by the way, to the world. Everybody could go into the outer court. The outer court contained the altar of sacrifice. We know there is no great altar in Jerusalem anymore. We know that 2,000 years ago, God made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the tree, the cross of Calvary, and shed his blood as an atonement once and forever, that all who believe in his name may not perish, but may find eternal life in his name. He is the great atonement for all of mankind. Jesus is. Jesus is. Hebrews 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. The bronze laver full of water, signifies baptism. We are baptized from death to life as a symbol of our regeneration of the Spirit. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Wow. Everything that this humble, simple craftsman did, not only blessed Israel for thousands of years, but tells the story of the coming of God to this world and tells the story of His church and tells the story of the hope that we have in Him and runs that truth like a clarion call through the minds of generation after generation. It's all in Jesus. Salvation, enlightenment, provision, authority, and power. It's all in Jesus. You and I, we are God's craftsmanship. We are built together into a living temple. We are called living stones in Scripture. We are cemented together through the bond of love in a new building that's risen. There was the tabernacle and temple. Then came the second temple, Jesus in the flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God among us. And then came the church, not a building, the church across the face of this world, generation after generation, living stones built together. We are God's craftsmanship. And every one of us has a place. 
Every one of us has a ministry. There's no such thing as the holy and the mundane, the sacred and the non-sacred. It's all in Jesus' name, according to His plan, by the power of His Spirit, it's important. Yet thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon millions of Christians sit passively. Oh, I don't have a place, I'm too little. Oh, I'm not a preacher. Thank the Lord that we have few preachers and more doers. We don't need more Indians, we, I mean, chiefs, we need more Indians. Oh, I'm too old. No, you're not too old. No, uh-uh. I'm too young. No, not too young. Oh, but I'm poor. Well, so what? Oh, but I'm rich. Tough. Oh, but I'm busy, aren't we all? There's a place for every single one of us. Everyone. There is an equipment, a skills, a ministry, and an anointing that will flow from that. If, see the word if in blazing letters in red with a huge circle around them, if you are willing. If you are willing to say, yes, Lord, I will seek my place in your body. And I will do what you put my hand to with all the strength that you have given me, with all the skill and the knowledge and the wisdom that you have already imparted and more to come. And I will receive joyfully your anointing. And I will fulfill my place in your church and in your world because a lot of the ministry doesn't happen in a building here. It happens wherever we are in our circle of influence. If you will trust and obey, then your place is secure in the shadow of the Almighty and the anointing of the God Most High will fall upon your lives if you are willing. If you are willing. Where do you start? I'll give you a practical example. One of the four little booklets I was telling you about. So it's called How to Find Your Ministry. Coinkidink. Hmm. It's not uh, how to find your gifting. It's no such thing. The Holy Spirit gifts us in order to fulfill our ministries. You, serve, you find your place. and God gifts us and anoints us. So it's available free of charge on this really neat website called truthistheword.com If you get on there, you can, get the, you can download this free now. But you can't wait two weeks because in two weeks' time it's going up on Kindle as are the other four booklets, and then, unfortunately, I have to take it down because I'm not, I'm not allowed to offer things free that Kindle want to make money out of. I won't make any money out of Kindle, Amazon. So get it now while it's free, and it's a step-by-step. It'll take you through how do you find your place. So, hey, what? You don't have any excuses. <laughs> Isn't that good? I want to pray with you. May I? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the life of that man, Bezalel, who most of us have never heard of, who made such a profound, profound impact on your kingdom for generations that are still unfolding before us. Thank you for the truth that is enfolded in what he did. Thank you for the encouragement of his example that every one of us has a place in the shadow of your wings and that you will equip us as you did him, that you will anoint us as you did him.
if we are willing. I ask Holy Spirit of God that you will not allow any one of us sitting here today to leave complacent. That anyone who does not know you, Lord Jesus, yet as Lord and Savior, will be prompted by your Spirit to do something about that today. To seek out somebody they can trust and say, help me. I need to know this one that people keep talking about. I don't just know him. If you're sitting here, Lord, if there's anybody sitting here who is complacent and says, ah, yeah, I've been there, got the t-shirt, that you'd move with power in their hearts. That they'd rise up afresh and invigorated and say, I have a purpose and a part of God's unfolding plan. And I will seek him again and apply my hand to what he leads me to. And I do ask this not just for the sake of your kingdom, but I ask it for the sake of your people. For there is no greater fulfillment or sense of destiny than to know that we are in the very center of your will and purpose, ministering in the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, and making an eternal difference to your world. And I do ask you all of this in Jesus' precious name, Father. Let it be so. Amen.